I don't oftentimes get a chance to do it, but I just felt, I just want to thank all of our volunteers who help us bring our props on and off and sound. And there's a lot of people that do things behind the scenes that do it voluntarily. Let's, let's say thank you, Tim. Would you please? can high-five our camera operators as well sometimes, but not, not while they're working, please, all right? They're volunteers who do a great job. Um, I want to tell you about something that happened to me in sixth grade. My dad went out and bought me a Crossman BB gun. Not a great dad, you know. It didn't go over real well with my mom, however, because we lived next to a patch of woods that was just full of squirrels. Now, what do you think is going to happen when you put a BB gun in the hands of a boy next to a bunch of woods that have squirrels in them, it's time to go hunting. But if you're concerned about the squirrels, my gun was underpowered and I was a terrible aim, so not really a lot to worry about, except there was a neighbor across the way who was kind of a grumpy person and he saw me going into the woods to do this and he decided he would do something about it. Well, I found out what he did about it because my mother came home early from the medical clinic where she worked as a nurse and grabbed me by the arm and said nothing, just grabbed me by the arm, and I knew I was in trouble. And she marched me through the house and went to the door, and as though it was perfectly timed, she opened the door up, and there stood towering over me Officer Bob. <laughs> Officer Bob was the chief of police of St. Charles, which didn't mean a whole lot. It meant he was the chief of himself and a part-time deputy that worked nights. But nonetheless, he was as round as he was tall. He was a huge man, he was in full uniform, and he looked down at me and he said, young man, you have been discharging a weapon in city limits. I'm like starting to shake, and he said, this is gonna go on your record. And I thought going on my record meant going to jail. So I started to quiver and shake and to cry. And he just lectured me about how bad that was and how dangerous it was. And, shouldn't be doing that. And finally, he looked at me and he said, and young man, I'm not going to put this on your record, but you better not let this happen again. And he walked away and my mother uttered those infamous words that mothers love to say sometimes, wait till your father gets home. <laughs> Later on, I kind of figured out the whole thing was just too timed. And I think what was going on is that Officer Bob or Chief of Police Bob and my mom were trying to scare me straight. And it worked for a little while. Now, the reason I tell you that story about Officer Bob is because I grew up in a brand of Christianity where God was oftentimes preached and portrayed by pastors and teachers and even my own family as being kind of like Officer Bob. God was the supernatural sheriff of the universe who patrolled the universe and particularly planet Earth looking for law breakers and especially repeat offenders who really offended him. And because of what I went through in my childhood and some of the challenges I had and then rebellion in high school, I, because of how I was brought up and raised, I just thought I've repeated so many offenses, God must not really have much use or time for me. Have you ever felt that way? You know, a lot of times people have a certain image of us, don't they? And I tend to be vulnerable at times, and, and then people walk up to me and say, I would have never guessed. I, I didn't know that, you know, happened to you or that's what your situation was. And as true as that is for me, it's true for everybody here. We don't really know each other. We don't really know what each other's been through, what we're facing. And it's very possible that, you know, 
behind closed doors. You look at your life and you think to yourself, given as many times as I have sinned, as I have failed, I wonder if God cares or even thinks about me anymore. If you ever felt that way, you're not alone. I think Moses may have felt that way. And as soon as I say Moses, I know what happens. We think of Moses as a superhero, don't we? Moses who led the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses who raised the staff and they crossed through the Red Sea as it parted. Moses the saint who goes up Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments. And all that's true, but you got to remember Moses was also a really bad guy. He was a lawbreaker and he was a murderer with a terrible temper. Remember the story of Moses? He starts out, little baby, born to Jochebed, when the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh was trying to kill all the little boys to and under because of why? Because the Hebrews were multiplying. He was afraid they were going to take over Egypt. So Jochebed hid her little baby in a basket in the reeds. Miriam was there to watch his sister. And it happened to be that Pharaoh's daughter was bathing and she saw him and took him and adopted him in the family. And Moses suddenly goes from being a little Hebrew slave baby to now a prince of Egypt. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? And royal robes and the best education, the finest food and influence and power. And it's all his, but he never forgets his Hebrew roots. Because one day, at about the age of 40, he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. And he gets so angry about it that he kills the Egyptian, looks both ways, buries him in the sand, and thinks he's gotten away with it. The next day, he goes back out. He sees two Hebrews fighting, and he tries to intercede to referee. And here's what one of them says to him in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14. Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? You're going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses knew he was in trouble, and he ran for his life. He ran as far as he could to a place called the Wilderness of Midian, and there he traded out his royal robes for the sun-bleached, tattered clothes of a shepherd. And at age 40, he goes from being the prince of Egypt to just a shepherd watching his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro's sheep, in the wilderness for the next 40 years. Let me ask you a question. Does your life feel like it's on the far side right now? Do you feel like you have been banished to the wilderness by your own failures? Or do you feel kind of like Job? I mean, Job woke up one day and his family was gone, his health was gone, his business was gone. In fact, he got so bad. Remember what his wife said to him? Why don't you curse God and die? He was in a wilderness that he hadn't made. He didn't even know how he got there. Maybe that's where you are today. Didn't ask to have your job taken away. Didn't ask to be in a financial crisis. Didn't ask to lose your health. Didn't ask for the loss that you've experienced in your life. Wildernesses are not places we want to be. I mean, a wilderness is arid. It is dry. It is hot. It is dangerous. I mean, it can become Death Valley very quickly. We try to avoid wildernesses. We don't want to be there. But what's interesting in the Bible is that the wilderness, as dangerous as it can be, can also be very beautiful, can be very, very powerful. See what do you mean by that? Well, the Hebrew word for wilderness, the root word for wilderness is davar, D-A-V-A-R. And that Hebrew word literally means to speak, like I'm doing, to speak. So the wilderness is the place where somebody speaks. Well, who speaks? God speaks in the wilderness. 
You say, well, I'd rather have God speak to me on my commute. I'd rather have God speak to me on the treadmill while I'm listening in my earbuds to some music. I want God to speak to me. You know, the 10 minutes I give him at night before I crawl in bed, I want God to speak to me when I'm at my cabin. I want God to speak to me when I'm at the beach. But I don't want to go to the wilderness for God to speak to me. Why do I have to go to the wilderness? We'll ask that question a little bit. But I want you to know that if you're in a wilderness right now, even if it's your own making, your own failure, God can speak. And God can reveal himself to us in the wilderness in ways he would not otherwise reveal himself. And if you're in a wilderness right now, rather than seeing it as an obstacle, I'm telling you, it is an opportunity for you to know God in a very special, powerful, and intimate way. And so Moses, on day 14,600, his 40 years in the wilderness, noticed that there was a bush that was burning and he'd seen tumbleweeds burn before, but this one was different. It just kept burning and burning and burning. Normally, if a tumbleweed catches fire, it's a flash burn. I mean, it's like poof, and it's done. This thing just kept burning and burning. So he went over to see what it was, and God spoke to him. Exodus chapter 3 is where God speaks, if you want to follow along, in verse 14. Or excuse me, verse 4. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. While you're turning there, I'll give you a moment to do that. I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. And a lot of them are global partners overseas, and we especially are thankful that you can join us today. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he, meaning Moses, had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Boy, I'd pay attention, wouldn't you? Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them cry out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and bring them up to that land, a new land, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, not parasites, but Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I can't blame Moses at this point. Dear God, I tried to deliver one Israelite, and look what happened. You want me to go back and deliver all the Israelites? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So in other words, God is saying, look, Moses, I'm sending you, but it's me that's going to deliver the people. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, this is the first time in the Bible, 
perhaps in all of history, when anybody has looked at God and said, who are you? Who are you? Have you ever wanted to ask God, who are you? Maybe in your failure, maybe in your guilt and your shame, your repeat offense, maybe you've wanted to say, God, are you like Officer Bob? <laughs> Scold me, lecture me, done with me? Or are you a gracious God? Or maybe you're like Job. In circumstances that you didn't ask for, and you just want to say, God, who are you? Are you, are you a God who knows? Are you a God who cares? Do you see what I'm going through right now? Who are you, God? And God proceeds to reveal himself, who he is to Moses. And it's really important for us to see this because it's who he is to us as well. And the first thing we learn about God as he reveals himself is that he is the God of perfect timing. God is perfect in his timing. He always is. God is not impulsive. God does nothing on a whim. God never has mistakes or accidents. Anything and everything that happens, happens for a reason and a purpose. And it's always in the right time. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but God's timing is not always my timing or your timing. You ever, you ever notice that? I wish God would operate by my watch, don't you? But he doesn't. God has his own watch. He has his own timing. And it's not for God to operate by my timing. God is not a magic genie. I rub the lamp with prayer, and he comes out and does what I ask. If I ask enough times, then ask in the right way. No, I'm supposed to adjust to God's plan. And God's promised me a great future, and in between now and the future, God may allow me to go into the wilderness by my own making or by his allowance. He may let me go through some difficult times, but it's always with a purpose. Why did God speak to Moses when he was 50? or when he was 60, or when he was 70. Why does God wait till he's 80? We're not specifically told, but I think we have a pretty good understanding of why God waited so long. It's because it took 40 years to Moses to get over himself. How many of you are working at trying to get over yourself, besides me? It's, it's a daily chore, isn't it? To get to the end of ourselves and stay at the end of ourselves. But it's only at the end of ourselves that we are really able to know God. And that's why God sometimes allows for the wilderness. And that's why I say the wilderness can be an opportunity because in the wilderness, you come to the end of yourself. You become helpless in the, in the wilderness. Everything's taken away from you and all you have is God left. And that's not such a bad thing, is it? If all you have is God left. That's what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. We don't like that. I don't enjoy denying myself. Last night, Marsha asked me if I wanted ice cream, and I've been trying to back off ice cream. I love ice cream. I could eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and snacks in between, and never grow tired of it. I love ice cream. Anybody else love ice cream like that? Wow. Wow. High cholesterol in this service. All right? <laughs> And, and the last few nights, I've realized I need to back off. And so, it's, it, but it's hard for me to say no ice cream, especially when she gets a bowl for herself. <laughs> Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. In other words, whatever your circumstances are, you move forward with. That's your cross, whatever, wherever you are. Now, if it's your failure, you confess it. God forgives you. You move on. It's a situation you can't control. You accept it. You move on. You do what you can, but you move on. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. We don't like that word, lose. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, Paul gives his personal testimony in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And he says, 
What is more, I consider everything a loss. My degree, my abilities, my skills, my self-righteousness I had as a Pharisee, my reputation. He said, I count it all a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In other words, I'd rather know Christ and lose everything else versus have everything and not know Christ. My Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Marshall and I have this little tug of war at home sometimes. I am a thrower. I just love to throw things away. Anybody else like that? I just, no use to throw it away. Marsha is far more economically conservative. She has a tendency to then look through the garbage and pull out things that I throw away and say, this is not throwable. This is something we need. Anybody else go through that battle besides me? All right? Yes, all right? It's our little thing we go back and forth with. So here's the question I have for you and for me. Are you willing to throw everything away in comparison to Christ? Or are, things, are there things in your life that you hang on to and you say, but I want this and I want Christ. And if God takes this from me, then I'm mad at Christ. Or do I look at it and say, God took it away from me. That's okay because I, it makes me want Christ more in my life. I like the way Tim Keller puts it. Tim says, and, and I want to give you this quote. He says, God won't use you. God won't use you until you feel absolutely useless. I don't know about you, but I don't like to hear that. God won't use you till you feel absolutely useless, but it's true. As long as I feel, no, notice what I said, personal pronoun, as long as I feel useful, God can't use me. Why? Because I'm always trying to assert my agenda. I have these gifts. I have these abilities. I can do this. And in America, we tout individualism. And nothing, nothing is more in the way and contrary to the gospel than individualism. I can do this. And that's why God allows us in the wilderness sometimes to get us to that place where I can't do anything anymore. I have a friend right now who doesn't attend here, who uh, very successful uh, businessman, just a great guy. We were in a discipleship relationship for a while together, and, um, and he just got bad news. He's got a very rare form of cancer that does not look good without some real intervention. Hard place to be. And suddenly, for all the success, for all the abilities, it is all useless. It's all useless. But I wish you could see what God is doing in his life right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Because he's leaning way into Jesus. And Jesus is just shining out of him. And it humbles me. All right, let's move on. God, not only is he God of perfect timing, but he's also the God of consuming presence. He's also the God of consuming presence. Let's go back to the fire again. Why does God present himself as a fire? And we've all seen on the news how, how dangerous fire can be. So why does, God's, why does God present himself to Moses and to us as this all-consuming presence, this all-consuming fire? Well, think about fire for a moment. You can see it, you can smell it, you can hear it, and you can touch it, though I don't recommend it. Fire is hot, 
Fire is there. You can't, I mean, it's just there. And God says, I want to be there in your life. I want to be a consuming presence in your life. I want to overwhelm you with who I am. That's what fire does. That's what God does. That's what God wants to do. Blaise Pascal was a scientist, philosopher, mathematician. He invented the first calculator. It was a big thing. Lived in the 1600s. And after he died, his housekeeper was going through his things, and she came to one of his coats, and she saw that he had stitched into his coat something that he had written out, and he'd drawn crosses all around it. And this is what he stitched into his coat. It was a mystical experience that he had, a spiritual experience. Here's what he said. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past 10 in the evening to about half past midnight, fire, he writes, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feelings, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God, your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ. Eternally enjoy. I can't read you everything he wrote, but he had an overwhelming experience of God. He never wanted to forget it. And so he wrote it and he stitched it into that jacket. I'm not saying that you and I will have experiences like that every day with God, but I am saying this. God wants to be that real to you and to me. Do you want to experience God like that? Then you got to be willing to go to the wilderness. You got to be willing to impose a wilderness. You've got to be willing to withdraw. You got to be willing to wait. You got to be willing to trust. You got to be willing to long and long and long. And in God's perfect timing, God will speak. God will make himself known to you. But we live in such a busy, hurried world. We don't have time for God to speak. We want him to do it on our commute. We want him to do it at the gym while we're listening to music in our earbuds. We want him to do it 10 minutes before we hop into bed. We want him to do it at the cabin at the beach. I've already talked about this. We want him to do it on the moment, in the spur. We want to get it. I read somebody, I don't know who it was, that said we treat God like an ATM God. We stand in front of the thing, we stick our card in, we punch our passcode in, and we want our cash back now. <laughs> Here I am, God, I'm giving my worship, do all my things, read the scriptures, say my prayer, please, God, now give me something back. And as long as we live that way, we'll never really know the consuming presence of God. And he wants to be so powerful, he wants to be so real in our hearts and in our lives, your heart, your life, mine as well. Do you know I'm like that? You see, here's the thing I do want to say, though, because the dangerous thing is, is that we'll pursue the experience only. I can't make God give me a Pascal kind of experience. As far as I know, he only had that happen once in his life. But what I know is this, that by faith, what, what we can experience in God, by faith, we, we have just as much. God is just as real in my life whether I feel the emotions of it or not, he's just as real. And that's why we're called to live by faith. So when we come to worship here on the weekends, do you come with an anticipation that God is in the house, so to speak? I think a lot of us in America, we treat church the way we do movies and the media. We come and we watch. 
and we listen and we walk away and we talk about whether the message was good or not, whether the music was good or not. It's all about where the consumer did worship please us. Do you realize how dangerous that is? Worship's supposed to please God. It's up to him to decide whether he liked the message or not or the music or not. I'm just supposed to come and give my best and give it to God and be in awe of God. And we need that attitude in our entire life to know God, which leads us to a third way that God reveals himself, and that is he is a God of absolute sufficiency, perfect timing, consuming presence, absolute sufficiency. When Moses goes to that bush and he sees it burning, he's overwhelmed with the fact that it burns and it doesn't burn up. It's like it doesn't need fuel. It just keeps burning, and that's what God is saying to us. I don't need fuel. I don't depend on anybody for my existence. That's why when Moses says, who are you? God answers and says, I am Yahweh. Now, the Hebrews won't put the vowels in here. And they won't pronounce the actual name. It's too reverent. It's too holy. What does Yahweh mean? Yahweh is the greatest word that God uses to define himself because it means I depend on nobody else for my existence. That's what it means. That's why God says, I am that I am. That's why Jesus in the New Testament calls himself, I am. I don't depend on anybody. I always have been and always will be. Can't get our minds around it, but that's who God is. Now, what's really interesting about that is how that aspect of God is woven into the fabric of our being. If I say to you, I am Dale, I am tired, I am hungry, what have I just done? I've invoked God's name. I am. One rabbi puts it this way. Listen carefully. He writes as only a rabbi could write. He says, when you speak of yourself, I am Dale, I am hungry, I am tired, you must say his name because your existence comes from his existence. He is the I am of all existence, the I am of all I am's. Your I am only exists because of his I am. And as you exist from him, so it is only from him that you can find the reason and purpose for your existence. So a couple of weekends ago, we were in the book of Genesis, and we said that God created us an image and his likeness. And God said to Adam and Eve, he said, I don't want you to take from the tree of the fruit, I don't want you to take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's what God was saying to them is I want you to depend on me for your existence. I want you to live out of me as your source of life. The serpent came along with the serpent say. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, you don't have to live out of God. You don't have to trust God. You don't have to depend on God. You can be your own I am. You can live out your own self. And they took that fruit. They disobeyed God. And ever since then, every one of their children, that includes me and you, have been born with this sense of I am. I am going to be my own God. I am going to live out of myself. And what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to truly be a Christian, not a cultural Christian, but a real biblical Christ-centered Christian, means I have transferred my life over to live out of Jesus, to live out of his presence rather than mine. And that is the battle that we face as Christians. Paul talks about it as the war in Galatians 5 between our flesh and the spirit. Who am I going to live out of today, out of me or out of the great I am? Who am I going to be? I am Dale today or I am Dale in Christ today? He is the I am in me. 
Now let's take that a step further. Look one more time at Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord stopped there, underlined and highlighted. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord sometimes speaks of a literal just angel of the Lord. Or in a case like this, it is a theophany. And a theophany, theological term, simply means Jesus appearing before his birth. It's a manifestation of Jesus in some form before he was born. That's what I think this is, and you'll see why. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement, thought the bush was engulfed in flames. It didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Now watch this. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him. God called to him from the middle of the bush. Well, I just read a couple of verses ago that the angel of the Lord is in the middle of the bush. God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, who is that angel of the Lord? One theologian says that this story, the miracle in this story, is not that a bush keeps burning and isn't burned up. The miracle is that Moses doesn't get burned up. Because he's come face to face with God. But nobody can see God and live. So who is this? This is God's son who serves as a go-between between the Father and me. And Jesus is the only means by which I have access to God. And it is through Christ that, and his life and death and resurrection and faith in who he is that I can have a relationship with God. And what's so beautiful about this is that nowadays, God doesn't look for a tumbleweed to come and manifest his presence to you and me. God looks to make his dwelling place in you and in me. We become the flaming bush, so to speak. We become the tumbleweed that he comes to and dwell in, and yet he doesn't consume us. He dwells in us and with us. Do you know God that way? I love how Paul pictures this for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen this carefully. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, light, fire, right? Darkness. Made his light shine where? In our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, the glory we saw in the face of Christ, God wants to manifest that in our hearts. He wants to shine out of our hearts. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are subject to being broken and cracked. Holes in them. To show that this all-surpassing power, the brightness, the glory of God, is from God and not from us. You know, as Paul is saying, look at our lives and our failure and our brokenness. He says, God just loves to take broken lives, lives in the wilderness. He loves to take our cracks, our hurts, our failures, and he loves to just make his presence in us and then just shine out of us in mercy and grace and forgiveness. And as we depend on him, he grows ever brighter in our lives. And that's why we have this pot up here, this clay pot, which is 
cracked and has holes in it. Nobody wants to take this home. This you throw in the trash. It's not any good anymore. We wouldn't, we wouldn't put it in a museum. We certainly wouldn't put it in a special place in our room. But this is who we are, isn't it? This is what our lives amount to from our failures. This is what our life amounts to when people hurt us, when we have loss, when our health goes bad, when our job goes bad, when we're struggling in our lives and our relationships. And as we drop the lights right now, it can feel so very dark in our wilderness experiences. But God says it is precisely in that darkness that I want you to depend on me in your feelings of uselessness. I want to shine through those wounds. I want to shine through those losses. I want to shine through those failures. I want to shine through those cracks. But you've got to give them to me, and you've got to trust me. Is he shining through you right now? Are you willing to give him your failures? Are you willing to give him your circumstances? Are you willing to give him your brokenness and say, God, I don't want to fight you anymore. I don't want to keep asking why. I just want to say what? God, here's my life. Here's my broken clay pot. Please, please speak to me. Please make your presence known in me. Please shine through me.